Gracious Heavenly Father, again we would invite you to be here to guide our minds through the Holy Spirit that we may understand those last texts and prophecies that affect us right now here. And may we clearly understand our position. And now may the blessings of the Lord and the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our Savior and Redeemer, amen. This morning we uh, discussed the great controversy with Greece, with uh, uh, Persia, Greece, and pagan Rome. And they were extremely relevant for the time in which people lived there. But for many of us, it may not be that relevant because we don't live in Persian times, in Greek times, and in pagan Roman times. And yet all those prophecies for the generations that were living there are very important. But we are living now under the last phase of the Roman Empire, and that is Papal Rome. And to us, those councils and those prophecies may seem even more relevant than the past, the previous ones. But at the same time, they're all important and show us the correctness of the prophetic word. And that the prophetic word is not human opinion, but can be trusted throughout the centuries. And, uh, and so for the people in Jesus' time, it was very, very important to see the fulfillment of pagan Rome. Yet to us, uh, papal Rome is very, very important because we, it is a power that is right now with us. <clears throat> so now we are discussing the transition from pagan to papal Rome. The prophecy here is of Daniel 11.30. And that is very important because many people are confused what takes place here. <coughs> it says, therefore, the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Therefore, he shall be grieved and return and having the nation against the holy covenant. So shall he do. He shall even return and have intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant. So let us now try to unpack this important prophecy. Fulfillment for the ships of Chittim shall come against him. Him is again the power of the King of the North. You see, pagan papal. But then it says here, therefore he shall be grieved. Now, against whom is did this attack directed? The spirit of prophecy has given here a very important insight to us on this section. And it has been a really an anchor to us in the explanation of the, the next 
15 verses. Spirit of Prophecy commented, the prophecy of the 11th chapter of Daniel has nearly reached its complete fulfillment. In the 30th verse, a power is spoken of that shall be grieved and return and have indignation against the Holy Covenant. That is the 13th volume of the manuscript releases, page 3. Nine, four. Here the prophecy introduces a new phase of Rome, namely Papal Rome. And that's very interesting here. And in fact, if you read the manuscript release there, she continues to quote a number of verses to verse, I think, verse 36, all dealing with Papal Rome. And uh, so therefore we are very clear that is here we have now the new and final phase of the Roman, of the King of the North. In this emblem of the papacy, that is still very, very important, there are two keys. And if you climb on the St. Peter, which many of our people that went on our tour did, they climbed to the top of the St. Peter, you look down and you see this mosaic in in colorful flowers. And uh, the first key is the papacy claims the ruler of the church, the spiritual ruler. And the second one is the ruler of the secular dimension. So here the papacy clearly states it is the power in the world that has dominion over the spiritual realm as well as the secular realm. Of course, this finishes, for those who study history, with 1798, when General Berthier on Capitoline Hill by the former forum proclaimed the termination of the secular power of the papacy. So there is only one key now that uh, is relevant. Nevertheless, papacy still claims, even if it is not loud, it still claims to have also the dominance of the secular power. And so here now we are interested, inter inter introduced by the conflict of the barbarian kingdoms with papal Rome. The fulfillment of this prophecy in verse 30 says, as a result of the attacks of the ships of Chittim against the kings of the north, papal Rome, he shall be grieved and return. Now at that time, if you study history, then you see that Rome desperately tried to defeat the Vandals who ruled the Mediterranean Sea. For about 40 years, they were in control over this. Genseric, the leader of that, uh, the Vandals, they sailed in the spring and let the ships go where the wind directed them. And many times they went to Italy, they got on shore and attacked the city of Rome, plundered the city of Rome. And so, I mean, that was, you know, to the Vandals, that was providence. 
And the Vandals consider the Catholics as heretics. Yet the Catholics consider the Vandals as heretics. And so this went back and forth, back and forth. And in my trip to North Africa, uh, especially there in Tunisia, I went there to a large archaeological uh, dig for many, many acres. And there in that dig, there was the only remnant in this world of the Vandals, a little chapel. And it was called the Vandal Chapel. This is the only evidence that we have of one of these three horns being picked up. Very interesting. Uh, and so, Rome's desperate effort to defeat the Vandals who ruled the Mediterranean Sea, as well as the invasions by other barbarian nations, utterly failed. Thus, Rome saw its provinces ravaged and its internal city looted by other barbarian kingdoms, such as the Goths, the Huns, and the Heruli, representing the first four trumpet scourges. Revelation 8, the first trumpets. God is using those trumpets to punish an apostate Christianity. Very interesting how this all works together. These enemies of the papacy were the kingdoms who had adopted the Aryan form of Christianity that the Catholics considered heresy. And there is the fight and the plundering. And many sections of, 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 of the city of Rome were destroyed by the Vandals. Then what is the papal Rome's indignation against the Holy Covenant? Papal Rome's indignation against the Holy Covenant was revealed in its efforts to suppress the Holy Scriptures, the Book of the Covenant, and its persecution of Bible believers. See, that is the indignation against the Holy Covenant. <clears throat> in time, by adopting pagan teachings into the Christian faith, the Roman Catholic Church became the, the dominant religion in the Roman Empire. Thus it obtains intelligence with them that forsake the Holy Covenant, through which it acquires military support against the enemies. And the enemies were the true Christians. It's interesting here, a number of years ago, that appears in one of the newspapers, a study in which the Vatican admits that the Bible was considered by them once a banned book. They have a whole index of banned books, and the Bible was one of them. Now, they still wouldn't like to openly reveal this, but uh, that was true. And so the conflict between the barbarian and Aryan kingdoms and the papacy here, and here you see a major part of Rome in fire. <coughs> From this text onward, and that is then a new phase of the king of the north begins. 
The papacy is upset because of the barbarian invasions by heretics. Thirty. The papacy made desperate efforts. Those are the chips of, of, of Shittim. That is the naval battles. And every battle the Roman Empire lost with great consternation. The papacy made desperate efforts to protect the city of Rome, the capital of the Roman Church. The papacy's indignation against the covenant focused on the destruction of the heretics like the gods, vandals, and heretics. And finally, of course, you know, the gods, the vandals, and the heretics were eradicated by the papacy. Those are the three horns that were plucked up. Then, at the same time, Rome corrupts God's church. Verse 31. And the arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. Now, first we will look at the arms, and then how to pollute, what is the pollution of the sanctuary of strength, and then the daily sacrifice is taken away, and the abomination of desolation is being set up. The papacy begins now to attack God's people through two major rulers, Clovis, the king of the Franks, and Justinian, the, king, the emperor of the Roman Empire. The fulfillment. <clears throat> Here begins the attack on God's people by the papacy after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. You know, let me just fill you out that the Roman Empire was divided into two pieces, the Western and the Eastern Empire. And so the Western Empire fell as a result of the uproot of these three horns. And the last one there was the Ostrogoths. The phrase, the arm shall stand on his part, reveals that the papacy is to be supported by arms, military power of the secular powers. The rise of the papacy was especially due to the military support of Clovis, the king of the Franks, and Justinian emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire. Here you see Clovis, the Ten Kingdoms. Remember the king, Ten Kingdoms? Romans fell into Ten Kingdoms. And the first kingdom that accepted the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church was the Franks, under the leadership of Colovus, the king of the French. He was a tremendous fighter, pagan. And how did he become a Christian? He admired the beauty of one of the Catholic princess, Clotilde. She's now a saint in the Catholic Church. And so he dated her, he got married to her, and then he had a war to fight. And the war was against the Alemanni, the Germans. And 
before that he was very successful, but then he seemed to be on the losing end. Confusion among his forces. And here I took this picture in uh, the Versailles, the, the hall of the battles. Beautiful if you see all those things there. And, uh, and so here he lifts his hand to heaven and he cries out, God of Clotilde, if you give me the victory, I will serve you the rest of my life. As soon as he has spoken those words, the fortune of the battle turned in his favor. And so, he then got the victory, and he reported it to his wife. And the promise that he has made, she immediately, as a good wife, went to the bishop, Bishop Remy, of the city of Rams. There's a beautiful cathedral there, and statues of Clovis. And so he gives them Bible studies, which is basically the Our Father and, uh, and other uh, statements, doctrines of the Catholic Church. And after he understood those, he was baptized. And uh, so then he became a fighter for the Catholic Church. And is an instrument of corrupting it. And they shall pollute the sanctuary of strength. Now what is the sanctuary of strength for the Christian? God's church. And the Catholic leadership would pollute the sanctuary of strength, the true church. It was the introduction of pagan teachings and tradition in God's church that polluted the biblical teachings or doctrines of the true Christians. Here Clovis, here it is. He stands in the baptistry. And so he was baptized in 508. He was the first king to offer his military power to the Roman Catholic Church. <coughs> and he was baptized in 508. Now, keep in mind 508. Do you remember Daniel chapter 12? The beginning of the 1290 years or days. And so he was the first of the ten barbarian kingdoms to accept the Roman Catholic religion. And through the military power of the Francis king, most of the other pagan kingdoms were forced to accept Roman Catholicism. And so the other seven, because you know, remember, three were picked up by. So the other seven were incorporated as a result of the military power of the Franks. Therefore, the Franks are called the eldest son of the papacy. See? The eldest son, the first. And the favorite son. The favorite son also. And so here then, Clovis was seen as the Constantine of the Catholic Church. He was seen as the one who liberated Catholicism from the enemy. And, uh, and so it is here. Then the second contribution here of this text is Justinian. And again, if you go to Ravenna, uh, in Ravenna you find the last remains of the Ostrogoths. 
beautiful day. Every year I see this here in our tours. And uh, Justinian's revision, he made the revision of the Roman law code. And he incorporated in this new law code in 533 a letter making the Pope the head of all the churches in the Roman Empire. See? No more other religions. The only religion was tolerated was Catholicism. Justine's contribution, Christians who remained faithful were persecuted by the secular power, Catholic powers, obedient to the leadership of the Catholic, of the, of the clergy. <coughs> and now here the setting up of the abomination of desolation, which happened in 508. The Catholic rulers within the Roman Empire would be instrumental in taking away the daily, whatever it is, because sacrifice or whatever you add to it, it's in italics in your Bible. And so there is not anything. And replacing it with the abomination of desolation in 508. So you find a transition here in 508 that is very important for the setting up of the abomination of desolation. There is one view that says the daily is paganism, and so the Catholic powers replaced the daily abomination and substituted that with the uh, abomination of desolation. Other ones see the daily as Christ's high priestly ministry, and so the Catholic powers, uh, you know, took away the daily ministration of Jesus Christ and substituted with the abomination of desolation. The view of the daily abomination of paganism is so that this view is based on the understanding that in Daniel there were two abominations that affected God's people. One of pagan Rome and one of papal Rome. And it was the Catholic political powers that replaced the pagan idolatry by the papal idolatry. Here you see then this picture. If you find then the gods, the idols, smashed into pieces, and in its place, the cross is being established. Then the view of the daily ministry of Christ, this view contains the daily in the context of the heavenly sanctuary ministry of Christ. This represents the idea that the Catholic powers took away the understanding of Christ's mediatorial ministry in the heavenly sanctuary and put in its place the idolatrous sacrifice of the Mass, the pagan, papal abomination. But no matter what view you admire, uh, in paganism, the papal, the, the pagan ministration to the gods was taken away, and by the Christians, the ministration of Christ was taken away. And in both places, instances, it was the abomination of desolation, the Catholic teachings that were put into substitute. So in 508, and the setting up of the abomination of desolation, what do we see here? A prominent study, and this is my doctoral student, Jean Zagowski, from Brazil, he wrote a whole dissertation on this event, 
and it is worth it. You can get it from the Adventist uh, the Theological Society. A prominent study by Jean Zagowski on the church-state relationship within the Roman Empire shows Clovis' involvement, how the papal abomination replaced the daily pagan abomination in 508. <coughs> before this date, many years before, emperors were in control of church and state. So emperors determined what was going to happen in the church or in the state. But with Clovis, a church and state function as equal partners now. Catholicism, the, cl the, the, the clergy, and the secular powers on one level. The church gave the decision to the state and the state executed them, which is a tremendous pr promotion. And this is also the foundation of the Holy Roman Empire of Charlemagne, which was neither Roman anymore or holy, very unholy. Here is the book, the role of the, the role of the status of the Catholic Church in the church-state relationship within the Homer Empire from 300 to 800. So only if you take a long-distance view, because many times in our church we have taken only looking at 508. No, if you take a long view, then you see the movements in church-state relationship very, very clear. And so therefore 508 is in the beginning of the 1290 years that ended in 1798. So in 508, the situation was established in law, making the papacy also involved in secular matters. 1290 years after that, 1798, General Belisarius abolished the secular power of the papacy. You see how beautiful it is, all this? Yes. The view of the daily ministry of Christ, and many have held of this. There is only one problem, is that there is no information showing that in 508 anything took place regarding the Mass. It was already fully established since the end of the 4th century. So what we see there in 508 is a very shift in the church-state relationships that gave Roman Catholicism the power the secular power that it needed. So then the next ver verse in verse 32 and 33, you find then the papal persecution during the Dark Ages. And here it is, the text. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall corrupt by flattery, but the people that know their God, so this is a different group of people, shall be strong to exploits, and they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword, by the flame, by captivity, and by the spoil many days. 
the fulfillment. Those who discard the covenant of God, those who do, and those who do not care about God's plan for salvation under the new covenant, they become corrupted by papal flatteries that many consist of in the bestowal of wealth, honor, or position. So if you're a powerful ruler and you choose for the Catholic Church, you get a special laurels, special triumphs. Wealth, honor, and position. And in such a way that during the height of the Middle Ages, if you had a king and you wanted to be sure of your kingdom and the support of the Catholics, you had to go to Rome. And when you go to Rome, you pay a lot, and then you are specially receiving a bestowal of your position and wealth and honor. And if you don't have the approval of the Pope, you don't get the approval of the millions of Catholic followers. And your duration of rulership will be of short term. Again, papal persecution. Yet not everyone will fall for the papal flatteries. Those who know their God shall teach the gospel to many. This work results in time of great tribulation for God's people. That would be fourfold. Through the thaw, 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 th sword or murder, by the flame or burned at the stake, by captivity or imprisonment, and by the spoil or confiscation of property. Prominent among those who suffered diverse or severe persecution were the Waldenses, Albigenses, and Huguenots. And the Albigenses were completely eradicated. Um, the many must likely be referred to the prophetic time period of persecution, which is the 1260 years of papal persecution. And here you see the gruesome pictures of the Inquisition and the torture. But they said this is beautiful because if through torture the person submits, then we have won a soul. And on our tours, we go to one special place in Siena, Italy, and that is the Museum of Inquisition. And you see that everything documented in English, so you know, for us that can't read Italian, beautiful thing, incredible. And the lady that is in charge of this museum doesn't seem to have high respect for the Catholics. I found out. And so next year when I go again, and next year we go with Hope International television outfit, I will give her a great controversy in Italian. And then I ask her to give me the reaction to this and see how true it is. And who knows that this lady will be converted to the true church. 
The help now of the Protestant Reformation. <coughs> Daniel chapter 11, 34. Now when they shall fall, that are the reformers, the Huguenots and the Albigenses, they shall be hopen or helped with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Interesting what is happening now here. <clears throat> many of God's faithful witnesses were killed during the dark ages of papal persecution. However, prophecy indicates that they would receive a little help. And this help was given through the Protestant Reformation as an encouragement to remain faithful. Yet, not everybody embraced the Reformation from worthy mo mo motives. In areas where the Reformation became popular, some became Protestants through flattery. It, it is good for us. And there you see, burning on the stake under the head, heading of the cross. Then we go further in history, and now we get from history on, from Reformation on, and, and, and beyond. That is the post-Reformation time. Prophecy of Daniel 11:35, and some of those understand of understanding shall fall. So the persecution goes on to try them, and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end, because it is yet for a time appointed. So the persecution goes on till 1798. Catholic Counter-Reformation. Yes, this text describes the period following the papal Counter-Reformation and after the Council of Trent. Remember, in the Council of Trent, the Jesuit order was established. Many of God's faithful witnesses who understood shared the gospel would fall. They would be tried by papal persecutions, followed the Reformation, and the subsequent devastating wars of religion. Millions of people perished. These persecutions would purify them so that they will be clothed with Christ's righteousness. <coughs> this period of intermittent persecution would continue, according to the text, for a time appointed till the time of the end, which was 1798, which began at the end of the 1260 years in 1798, when the secular power of the papacy was abolished by the edict of the French Republic. Again here, the Inquisition. And you have there also a museum dealing with the Inquisition there in France. Then, there are some texts that deal with the character of the papacy. How does the papacy behave? Prophecy is chapter Daniel, chapter 11, verse 36. And the king, which is who? The king of the north. See? All the time during this, from 31 until the end, the king of the north is the papacy. King shall do according to his will. He shall exalt himself, magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods 
and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished for that that is determined shall be done. The character of the king of the north, the papacy, in this text shows that he is identical to the man of sin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4, and the little horned power of Daniel 8, 25. In both instances, they have been identified in prophecy as the papacy. Furthermore, this king shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods, like the little horn of Daniel 7, verse 25 who is also the papacy. See, so God will not want you to be confused. Second Thessalonians, the papacy. Daniel 7, the papacy. Daniel 8, the papacy. But every time in a different symbolism. And now in chapter 11, not any more symbolic. In clear letters, the king of the north. Here are the characteristics is the papacy. Isn't God marvelous that God gives us all this information so that God's people in the end of time don't need to be confused? You see? Anybody who sees this and don't make a stand for Christ is not mentally good. The evidence is so overwhelming what more could God do? And therefore, those prophecies should be used in Bible studies. All these blasphemous actions the, the king of the north performs with success, till God's wrath or indignation shall be accomplished at the end of the 1260 years, with a deadly wound in 1798, ending the secular power of the papacy. Beautiful. Then again, a text that clearly shows that the papacy departed from the teachings of the New Testament apostles. Daniel eleven thirty seven. Neither shall he, the king of the north, the papacy, regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. The papacy departed from the New Testament apostles. The papacy departed from the beliefs and practices of the New Testament apostles as supplanted his teachings with pagan traditions. It no longer follows the God of his fathers. The New Testament, the apostles, in addition, it did not regard the desire of women. This is reflected in the teaching that requires clergy to be celibate. This teaching is called in the Bible a doctrine of devils. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 to 3. <clears throat> and many other teachings instituted by the papacy show that he does not regard any God, but will magnify himself above all. Then a section here in Idolatry of the Papacy. Verse 38 in Daniel 11. But in his estate 
shall he honor the king of the north, the papacy, the God of forces, and a God whom his father knew not shall be he honored with gold, silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. The papacy shall honor the God of forces. What does it mean? In place of the true God who freely offers to everyone the gospel of grace and salvation, <coughs> the papacy uses force in spreading their teachings, especially military force. As history has overwhelmingly shown, the papacy forms alliances with secular powers and uses their political, economical, and military force to achieve its goal of world domination. The papacy honors a God whom his fathers knew not. Shall he honor with gold, silver, and with precious stones and pleasant things? Many commentators, not only Adventists, but many commentators, in the, especially during the French, during the Protestant Reformation, have identified this God whom the Father knew not in the Roman Catholic worship as the Virgin Mary. Her position in the Catholic Church is similar to that of Jesus Christ. She mediates grace, grace and forgiveness to sinners. Blasphemy. Her images are covered with gold, silver, and precious stones. The gifts of the faithful worshippers. Very, very sad. Other objects of idol worship are the saints who are believed to intercede for the worshippers. More papal idolatry. 39. Thus he shall do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many, and shall divide the land for gain. <coughs> The strange God is again a reference to Mary as an intercessory mediator. <coughs> the papacy has elevated the humanity of Mary to the level of deity, which is pure idolatry. She has become an indispensable support in daily living for those who believe in her role of salvation. As a result, her reputation has increased with glory as a source to obtain eternal life. In a tremendous idolatry. Many has, Mary has been honored as a patron saint. What does a patron saint do? She protects cities, provinces, countries, and continents. Various vocations or professions claim her as patron saints. And if you go to the Catholic cathedrals in, in Europe that you will see, you can see the idolatry. And Jesus Christ, no. Where is he? Miri, 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 Miri. 
Hier is de Black Madonna. Je hebt alle kinds of Madonna's. And if you're pregnant, you worship that Madonna. If you are a carpenter, you, you, you worship that Madonna. If you are sick, you go to that Madonna. In all the chapels of the cathedrals, you find Madonnas, but each for a different purpose. So that at least you are covered. Now we come to the most significant thing for us here. The war between the kings of the south and the north in the time of the end. Verse 40 to 43. Here's the prophecy in Daniel 11:40, And at the time of the end, the king of the south... shall push at him, the king of the north. And the king of the north shall come against him, king of the south, like a whirlwind with chariots and horses, with many ships, and he shall enter into the countries and shall overflow to pass it over. In the passage of Daniel 11, verse 40 to 45, it deals with events in prophetic history since the time of the end, that began in 1798. So everything since 1998 till today is covered in those passages. The king of the north is still papal Rome. At the time of the end, the king of the south attacks the king of the north. Now we have had lots of speculation. Who is now the king of the south? And books have been written about this. That brings utter confusion among us. But you know, it is not that difficult. If you understand how to interpret Scripture. It is all a matter of interpretation of Scripture. And if you have a false assumptions, you will never get out of it. Here is the cross-centered interpretation of prophecy, or the Christ-centered, in Daniel 9. And what does Daniel 9 reveals, which is very important in the understanding of all prophecy in the time of the end. And those who don't understand Daniel 9 will be utterly confused. And so Daniel 9 is one of the key foundation stones of Adventism. And even the 2300 days you can never understand without Daniel 9. Here it is, 70 weeks are determined upon thy people. Here are the 490 weeks or 490 days or years. Seven weeks, 62 weeks, and the one week. <coughs> the period goes from 457 BC to 34 AD. And here in the end, the stoning of Stephen. Now, what did that accomplish? Israel's product probation is ended. The transition of God's covenant people from literal Israel to spiritual Israel. If you don't understand this, you're constantly looking to the Holy Land, which is not the Holy Land at all, constantly to, 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 to the Middle East and whatever, and come up with all kinds of speculations. 
So remember, at the end of this period, see, 70 weeks are determined upon God's people. To do what? To finish transgression, to put an end to sin. You see, this is a period of, of, of repentance. And if literal Israel would have accepted it, then everything would be all right. But what did they do? They crucified Christ. And through the crucifixion, they couldn't stand any more testimony about Jesus Christ. And so Stephen died. He was stoned. And from that time on, little Israel has lost its prophetic function. And yet many Christians still believe in that. Very, very sad. And even some Adventists. No, friends. Little Israel is out of the picture. It is now spiritual Israel. And if that transition takes place, what will it do to all other symbols in the Old and New Testament? Here it is, a cross-centered view of prophecy. In the Old Testament, the prophetic concepts in the Old Testament are literal geographical meaning. So, God's people, what is it? Little Israel. The location, where do they live? Palestine. It's called so-called the glorious land. Remember this morning that, that we saw how, how Rome entered into the glorious land and took away and made Israel a Roman province? You know, remember that we did this? Enemies, the kin, the relatives. Edom. Moab and Ammon. Well, who are they? The, uh, the, the offspring of who? Esau. Yeah, Abraham, but Esau. Esau. Edom. Moab and Ammon. The offspring of Lot. So they all have a closer relationship to, to Israel. See? Different from the Gentiles, the enemies, literal Babylon, Egypt, Libya, Ethiopia, those were countries that supported Egypt. You see, so everything now, keep in mind, has a literal geographical meaning. So now we're going then to the New Testament. And prophetic concepts in the New Testament have now a spiritual, global, universal meaning. So God's people... Not any more literal Israel. No. Spiritual Israel. Where does spiritual Israel live? In the world. In the spiritual glorious land. Wherever Christians live. Enemies, the king reverence. We are now talking about spiritual Edom, spiritual Moab, and spiritual Ammon. Not in, in Jordan and Iraq and Iran. No. Those countries take now a spiritual meaning, and the people also. The enemies, the Gentiles. Babylon, what is it? It's not anymore literal Babylon, like Iraq or Iran. No. It is spiritual Babylon. Egypt, it is spiritual Egypt. Libya, spiritual Egypt and spiritual Ethiopia. Do you see the transition? Based on Daniel 9. If is, let Israel was not rejected, everything that 
I was saying here is foolishness. But Israel has been rejected and now everything is spiritual Israel, spiritual country, spiritual things. And so we have to study the Old Testament to understand what is its spiritual significance. Are you with me? So the prophecy of Daniel, in the light of Christ-centered or cross-centered prophetic interpretation, the king of the south, in the time of the end, refers to a spiritual Egypt that opposes the papacy on the global, worldwide scale. It's not anymore literal Israel that is fighting the papacy. No, it's spiritual Israel. And so, now we get the prophecy, and you have to understand also, I can, I can do this on another time, <clears throat> but the prophecy of Daniel 8.14, and it has to do with France. In the context of events in 1798, and where did they take place? France. And the French Revolution, the power that was to arise against the Bible, according to historicists and Ellen White, Great Controversy 265 and 266, was a form of atheism similar to that of ancient Egypt on the Pharaoh. Who is this fair God that will prevent me? That's what the Pharaoh said. The same like the French Revolution. And I have been uh, doing quite a bit of research in, in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, in Paris, and there you find the tremendous opposition. <coughs> I've heard Edmund say, oh yeah, there's three and a half days there, or three and a half years. There's no evidence for it. Yeah, you can say that if you are in the United States looking at books, come with me and go to the Bibliothèque Nationale and I take you to the library and I give you exposure to all the documents and you will be converted. I spent quite a bit of time doing all those things. And so here, from that time on, 70, 1798, uh, the modern atheism began worldwide attack on the papacy. You know, in 1844, Karl Marx and Engels wrote a communist manifestation. And that was the platform of the tremendous communistic revolution the Bolshevik Revolution in, 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 in Russia, and millions of people perished under the Bolshevik Revolution. And then China, Russia, all kinds of countries were there. And it was not until the 1980s, under Reagan and Pope John the Paul, that things were starting to turn. See? Next, the king of the north launches an offensive against the king of the south. And we are now in that phase that the king of the north, the papacy, launches an offense against the rest of Christianity, against the Protestant church and whatever. <clears throat> the king of the north enters the glorious land and many countries, or whatever it says, also many people uh, shall escape. <coughs> Prophecy of 41. He, the king of the north, shall also enter into the glorious land. And many countries, and countries is in italics, 
because you can also say many peoples shall be overthrown. Both these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom, Moab, and the chief children of Ammon. See? Those will escape the papacy. It is spiritual Edom, spiritual Moab, and spiritual Ammon. Keep in mind, we have to be consistent. Don't jump now immediately to a conclusion and look in, in, in the Mediterranean area. Don't look at the Middle East. What is the spiritual significance of those things? Here is a reconciliation between Roman Catholicism and the Orthodox Church. Here we deal with an invasion of a, re a revived papacy into the glorious land. The glorious land is where God's people live throughout the world. And of course, the glorious land is not the papacy. He enters into it. What else can it be than spiritual Israel, where spiritual Israel lived? And spiritual Israel, outside of Catholicism, is the other Christianity, Protestantism. See? The Protestantism is there. And what does the Catholic Church now do? Oh, yes. She is being very actively involved. The papacy will invade the Protestant world through the ecumenical movement. Don't look specifically to the Middle East and all the wars that are going on and the massacres. No. Look at what the papacy is doing to win friends and influence people. See? The, the, the ecumenical movement was, used to be a Protestant movement. Started in 1910 in Edinburgh and, and, and get all the church, churches together into a united missionary movement, especially also the World Council of Churches. And I spent there some time studying what the World Council of Churches was. All of the things there. And the Catholic Church had nothing to do. What happens now? Now, under Pope John Paul II, and especially also on Francis, the initiative of ecumenism is in the Catholic hands. And now the Catholic hands made overtures. We have to go together. We have to go together. And next year, all the Christian world is invited by the Pope to unite against secularism, communism, atheism, to preserve the heritage of the Christian Church. What? Should we accept this invitation? With the papacy? No, this is a different strategy, friends. Okay, the text further states that many countries of people shall be overthrown, not just a few. The Roman Catholic Church will accomplish this through the interreligious dialogues <coughs> aimed in winning over cooperation and support of the Protestant followers of and the followers of other religions. See, that's what's happening now. That's what and many will be overthrown. And many countries, I mean, here, even, even in, in the, the Lutheran Church, you know, 
De krijg is over. De reformation is over. De protest is over. En daar in Augsburg, when uh, they made the, the, the foundation of, the, of Protestantism and its creedal statements and whatever, there, hand in hand, Protestants and Catholics are marching to celebrate the fifth centennial of the Reformation. Catholics and Protestants. No, this present Pope, the Jesuit Pope, is very, very smart. He's one of the smartest there is. And he wins many, many followers. And people are deceived. And the interreligious dialogues, ever since Vatican II, the Catholic Church has a whole department of interfaith dialogue with every world religion. Diplomats are going back and forth. And I was there in the World Council of Churches. I participated in a number of those sessions there. Catholic Church didn't want to, have, want to become a member. But in order to placate the Roman Catholic Church, the Catholics are members of every committee in the World Council of Churches. They shouldn't be there because they are not members. Yes, they be obeisance and they be uh, done all kind of good things. So the prophecy predicts that Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Amnon will escape being conquered by the papacy. How do we know? Isaiah prophesied that in the end of time, those nations will be reclaimed. So how are you going to interpret this? See? So they will return. They will return. Not all. But here is God's people. God's people. They are related. How are they related? Because they believe in the gospel. And many Christians are very fine Christians. They believe in salvation through Christ. They believe in this. But they are confused with all the things that they see. Ellen White says in Great Controversy, I think it's page 395, that many in those other churches are looking in vain to Christ revealed in the churches. They don't find it because the churches are apostatized. But there is a remnant in Babylon. And that remnant is looking for a true church. And is the Adventist church ready? Do they reveal Christ in a very special way that nobody else does? See, if we do this, then they will come with us. See, that is our mission. You see how important Daniel 11 is for the mission of our church. And we don't pay it any attention. We hang around 1844. But this is in the last days. And though these three groups represent God's people in the apostate religious systems of spiritual Babylon, who reside throughout the world, and they will positively respond to the loud cry Amen. of the three angels' messages. Here it is. 
Are we sharing the loud cry? See? You can get through 28 fundamental beliefs. And the loud cry is not mentioned there. So you have to develop your own study on that. Okay. <clears throat> the king of the north decisively conquers Egypt and its allies, Libya and Ethiopia. See? Daniel 42 and 43. <clears throat> Here you find the, the text. And he, the king of the north, the papacy, shall stretch out his hand also upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape, but he shall have power over the treasures of gold and over silver and over all the precious things of Egypt, and the Libyans and Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Now, the papacy will attack that which is left of the atheistic powers in spiritual Egypt. There is still something left. In the Old Testament, the Libyans and Ethiopians supported Egypt in its wars. Spiritual Libya and spiritual Ethiopia represent those countries or peoples dominated by what? Buddhists, Hindus, Hindus, Muslims and other non-Christians who have supported the communistic bloc nations against Christian nations. When these powers see the success of the papacy, they will give it their support. Here it is. Clearly shows the missionary strategy of the papacy and our response to this. See how important Daniel chapter 11 is. Can you see it? See? If we don't know the strategy of the papacy, we are missing the mark. We're shooting in the air. And so here you see both those that will join the Adventist church as the remnant church and those who will join the papacy. <coughs> Tidings from the east and the north bring about the final persecution. So what does the text say? But tidings of the east and out of the north shall trouble him. Therefore he shall go forth with great fury to destroy and utterly make away many. So, here it is. There is a problem coming out, the east and the north. Despite the success of a revived papacy and its worldwide victory, over the king of the south and its allies, there remains an obstacle to the worldwide dominion of the king of the north that caused by tidings of the east and of the north. Now think about it. <coughs> See, so in, in spite of its successes in ecumenism and all those kind of things, what is the east and the north, the tidings? The mission of the loud cry message of Revelation 18.1. In the Old Testament, the north is the literal place of God's dwelling. You know that? And in the east is the literal place where God's glory comes. 
And Satan in Ezekiel wants to place his throne in the north. You know? He wants you to usurp, usurp, but will not be able to do it. So here then, during the time of the end, both the east and the north can be considered as symbolic, is sense as God's dwelling places from where the deliverance comes. And where does the deliverance come? From the message. In this context of tidings out of east and out of the north are messages from the three angels of Revelation 13, 14, verse 6 to 12, that proclaim the righteousness of Christ and unmask the deception of the king of the north. Here it is. Then the final battle of the papacy. Now some of you may not know this, but this is very, very important. <clears throat> In this final battle, just before the close of probation, here's a quote by the Spirit of Prophecy. Quote, many will be imprisoned, many will flee for their lives from the cities and towns, and many will be martyrs for Christ's sake in standing in defense of the truth. Maranatha, page 199. See? Now, we will not be martyrs after probation, but just before probation, many of us will be martyred. Now, do you see it in the world? No, it's still coming. It's still coming, friends. And that is it. The final papal strategy to destroy God's remnant ends in the defeat of the king of the north. Verse 35. <clears throat> and he shall plant in the, the tabernacles of his place between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to an end and none shall help him. This is the final strategy of the papacy. And at the same time, uh, his end. The final papal strategy to destroy God's remnant. Here it is. And the correct translation of that text is in the New English translation. See what it says here. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas towards the holy mountain. The seas, what is it? Groups of people. The nations. So in the final analysis, Satan has deceived the whole world, you know, Revelation 13. The whole world will wander after the beast. And so that is between the seas. The seas in the Old Testament, the Mediterranean and the other sea there, in the middle between the people, in the midst of the people. He will there put his center and focus towards the beautiful holy mountain. Now, in, the, in your Bible, it, it doesn't come clearly out. See here? In your Bible, the most translations, it says, he shall place a tabernacle of his palace between the seas in the glorious holy mountain. And there's a problem. Between the seas, in a mountain, now let's go on here. He will pitch his royal tent between the seas, between the people, 
and focus towards the holy mountain. Here is the final attempt of the papacy to destroy God's remnant people and the survived the final onslaught of persecution. God's hope, holy mountain. What is that? God's church. On Mount Zion, there is salvation. And so God's holy mountain is a beautiful holy mountain. Mount Zion, you know, 144,000. It's all there. So God's remnant people are there. But the papacy puts his seat in the midst of the people of the nation, facing against God's people. You see the picture? See? And so here then, the final strategy to destroy God's remnant. Its strategy puts his royal tents or the center of false papal worship between the seas, between the peoples, towards or facing the beautiful, glorious, holy mountain. The papacy will place its apostate worship in the midst of the peoples of the world, leading him towards the beautiful, glorious, holy mountain, God's remnant church, in the final global attack to destroy him. You see this? Does this make sense? I think some of you have to study this a little bit more <laughs> and get the, the CD or whatever because that is very important, you see. The final strategy, Satan becomes in, in, in the center of this world. The whole world will follow the beast. But what about the holy, beautiful mountain? That is not the papacy. That's God's people. God's people, spiritual Israel, live in the glorious holy land. But the glorious holy mountain is the center, the center of it all. And so many people in spiritual Israel will not make it, see? Because Satan will invade the glorious holy mountain, see, glorious holy land. But in the mountain he has no access. In the mountain there is salvation. On Mount Zion, you see, Revelation 14. And the message that brings them there is the three angels' messages. Now, some of us said, oh, yeah, you know, some of the other churches are keeping the Sabbath. That's fine. But we'll not save them. They need to have the whole message. And then, and the glorious holy mountain, the place to escape in the glorious holy mountain, in the glorious holy land. The glorious holy mountain is located in the spiritual glorious land. It's Mount Zion. Spiritual Mount Zion is the mountain of God's holiness and his beautiful hill. Furthermore, God's people are compared with God, uh, with Mount Zion. And at the close of time, of the end, there is deliverance in the, the spiritual Mount Zion and spiritual Jerusalem. It is the last message of mercy that will be proclaimed from spiritual Mount Zion by God's remnant people, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Here it is, friends. This is the very, very last moment. And people can see this church 
when it shines in the arms of God's righteous by faith. See? That is the letter rain. And if you don't are a part of the letter rain, it's tragic. But it is the letter rain that will be given to Adventists who have gotten the victory over sin. Gotten the victory with Christ Jesus. Now, all those things are only possible through Jesus Christ. You know, if you say, oh yeah, how, how am I going to do it? Turn to Jesus. Don't turn to me. I only share your message. <clears throat> but this is at the close of time. In the final offensive of the King of the North, the papacy will come to its end with no one to help. Even if they now hold their books, all their Bibles and whatever, no. Can you not think that we are very, very privileged? And God will have us make a decision. And maybe there are here some who have never made this decision. Unless you make the decision, friends, to follow Christ all the way, it's not going to help you. See? It's all the way, not half, not 90. You know, people, some of people are present in 90%. It's tragic. Make the decision now. Very, very important, friends. And so the Lord, if you love the Lord, then you follow all the way. Do you really follow all the Lord? See, that is the question. And so here the summary of the visions. Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 11. Babylon, the head of gold, <coughs> the lion with eel wings. It doesn't speak in Daniel 8, neither in Daniel 11. Medo Persia, chest of arms and silver. Bear with two ribs in the mouth, the ram and the four kings. In verse 2, Greece, thighs of brass, hip of brass, leopard with four heads, beast with notable horns, four horns, and the king of the north and the king of the south. Pagan Rome, legs of iron, nondescript beast, dragon-like beast, Little horn, verse 10, 16 to 29, the king of the north and the king of the south, Egypt. Papal Rome, little horn, little horn, larger portion of the thing, and then verse 30 to 45, the king of the north. You see how beautiful everything flows? Everything is. So unless you forget how God shows you Daniel 2, 7 and 8 and 9. You missed it. Okay. So the conclusion now of this morning and this afternoon. This study has used the historicist method of interpretation of apocalyptic prophecy of Daniel 11. Unless you had a historicist and historical... Few, you don't, you miss it. It follows the 
Christocentric, cross-centric interpretation in which kingdoms, country, and places before the cross are interpreted as having little meaning and after the cross having spiritual and global meaning. If you forget that, you go into the quagmire of speculation. <clears throat> this approach is based on an understanding that the 70-week prophecy of Daniel 9 reveals that at the end of little Israel in Palestine was replaced as God's covenant people by spiritual Israel located worldwide. The transition from literal to spiritual Israel has profound effect on the interpretation of prophecy whose fulfillment takes place in the Christian era after the cross. Names such as kings of the south, north, kings of the south, glorious land, glorious holy mountain, Edom, Moab, Ammon, <coughs> Egypt, Libya, and Ethiopia must be interpreted in a new covenant spiritual sense. <coughs> Spear, failure to do this or an inconsistent use of this principle of prophetic interpretation has led to confusion in the understanding of Daniel 11. To arrive at the proper meaning of the text, both the study of the text and historical events need to be taken into consideration in every detail of the text. If one aspect of the text does not fit proper explanation of the whole, one needs to look for another interpretation until the all elements of the text fit. See, so every detail needs to be fixed. Great care should be taken with using arguments based on literary structures recommended by non-historicist scholars, non-Adventists. Their reasoning is based on a non-historical interpretation that leads to conclusions that conflict with a continuous historical interpretation. Consequently, we find that there are many conflicting views on Daniel 11. It is therefore recommended to follow the highly effective rule of prophetic interpretation used by the early Adventist pioneers. Here it is. William Miller, to know whether we have the true historical event for the fulfillment of a prophecy, if you find every word of the prophecies after the symbols are understood is literally fulfilled, <coughs> then you may know that your history is a true event. But if one word lacks a fulfillment, then you must look for another event await its future development. For God takes care that history and prophecy do agree so that the true believing children of God may never be ashamed. What do you say? Is it marvelous? And so here are the additional sources that uh, you can find uh, if you look at audio verse under my name. And I have about uh, over a hundred works that I have uh, written, papers. And if you do the bottom part, you can get to my site at Andrews University. And you can download all those hundred papers. But I would say to do, do one by one.
But anyway, you know, so in other words, and, and also there is one unpublished paper that I have submitted to Biblical Research Institute on this whole presentation this morning and this afternoon, which you can download. It's all available. So if you want to, this, to do this, you're welcome. And so may God help you. And I hope that this presentation, this Bible study, will stimulate you to do some further study. And you know, here in the book of Daniel 11, you have 44 little studies of prophecy. Isn't it marvelous? And so if we share this with the world, you know, it is difficult to reject all those things. Better to jump on the bandwagon of the remnant church. Because that church will continue. And may God help you. And may I see the hands of who want to study this further on your own. <coughs> okay. Praise the Lord. And this will help you in the study and in, in the sharing of the three angels' messages immensely. So may God help you. Let us pray. <coughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, having us this light that shines amidst the darkness in this world today. Oh, Father, help us to be instruments of your Holy Spirit that we may have the courage to share this with others who are still in darkness. Oh, Father, may we reveal not only the prophecies, but the life of Christ in our own lives, that people want to become a part of your remnant church. Thank you so much, Father, for these things, and bless each one of us here, especially those who want to study this further. And may God bless you, in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.